Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The word of the Lord. There is a saying about the importance of having a boat in your life. It goes something like, when it comes to owning a boat, make sure you have a friend who owns one. I was fortunate enough growing up that uh, as a kid in California, my uncle did own a, a small boat. And he would often, when we got a little older, take us out into the bays around Orange County and I was always really fascinated when he would drop the anchor overboard and I would just watch it just plunge down into the sea. Uh, because up until that point when I got a little older, the, the only anchors I was really familiar with were those giant anchors like you would associate like with a pirate ship. And they were, you know, way bigger than me. But this was like a rather small, thin metal anchor, you know, something that I could even lift as a kid. And I would just watch it evaporate into the depths of the bay until all I could see was just the little chain that tethered it. And I was told that this was going to hold the boat in place, no matter how hard or difficult the seas got. But hold it actually did. This week in our letter to the Hebrews, our author Apollos, or perhaps Priscilla, if you listened to Pastor Sarah's sermon last week, kept has kept us on this emotional roller coaster of encouragement and then warning, encouragement and warning. And so last week, Sarah got us through another warning into the encouragement about the author's confidence in this Hebrew Christian congregation in Rome. The author of Hebrews will continue this week with both an encouragement and then another lesser to greater comparison from Jewish history. What have those comparisons looked like so far? Well, however good you think Scripture is at revealing what God is like, Jesus is better at revealing what God is like. However good you think angels are as a medium to God's power, Jesus is better as a medium to God's power. However good you think Moses was as an authority for God's people, Jesus is a better authority for God's people. However good you think priests are to access God, Jesus gives us better access to God. And now our preacher brings up Abraham, the very first Hebrew. 
However, this time it is not going to be that Jesus is better than Abraham. Why? Well, because Abraham lived a problematic life to say the least. He wasn't a great guy, which is part of the reason I think God called him to demonstrate that God really can use anyone. And so our preacher isn't going to compare Jesus to Abraham here. There's no contest with that. But rather, he's going to talk about the promise that Abraham received from God. So what is the lesser to greater comparison? However reliable you think the promise made by God to Abraham was, the promise made by Jesus to us is even more reliable. So let's jump in at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. In the book of Genesis, God makes multiple promises to Abraham about what God will do through Abraham. For example, in our first reading this morning from Genesis 22, we read this. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, so what are these promises? Your people shall be a global people. You shall overcome your enemies, and through you all nations shall be blessed. But honestly, Abraham hardly can care about any of these And the last one about blessing nations doesn't even really make sense to him. Abraham really just wants his family line to continue. And in many ways, we're not too different. Jesus has given his followers promises as well, and they tend to be these expansive, beautiful promises. In John 10.10, Jesus promises us abundant life. But I know that I am often more focused on the abundance of my bank account or the lack thereof. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus promises us victory over the forces of evil. But I'm often worried that the next election cycle will usher in the end of the world. In Matthew 14, 11, 28, Jesus promises us eternal rest. But I'm often more concerned with planning out my next vacation. And in John 14, 2, Jesus promises us that his father's house has many rooms and that he goes to prepare a place for us in that house. But really, I'm often more just concerned with paying the mortgage on any house, the millennial dilemma. God's promises to Abraham were big. Jesus' promises to us are big. But I very often tunnel vision on what may only be a temporal fraction of a promise, a a short-term sliver. And then all my anxiety fixates around it. So it's really interesting here that the preacher of Hebrews sums up Abraham's spiritual resume as the following in verse 15. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Y'all, we don't have time to go into all of Abraham's life today, but let's just say that even a cursory look at Abraham's life would reveal this to be a very charitable assessment 
This is like saying your child patiently waits for Christmas presents because they only got up at 6 a.m. rather than 5 a.m. on Christmas morning. It's like, I guess that's better. Same with Abraham. Yeah, he did wait. But at one point he got so tired of patiently waiting to continue his family line that he impregnated one of his own slaves in order to have an heir. That would be a major failure in his life that would haunt him for years to come. But I do actually love this characterization of Abraham as patient because the preacher of Hebrews is inviting his audience and by extension us to be like Abraham. Y'all, this is great news. Why? Because that is a really low bar to clear. Hallelujah. But seriously, I often think we imagine that when it comes to God, our faith is primarily judged by its failures. Like, oh, you were a faithful, forgiving, compassionate, prayerful, evangelistic person working for justice 99% of the time, but then God's really excited to pull out that highlight reel of that one time you gave someone the finger in traffic. Ooh, bad Christian. Mm, good thing you're forgiven, otherwise there'd be problems. But what if? God doesn't judge our faith primarily by its failures, but by its successes. The one time you didn't want to pray for that obnoxious coworker, but you sucked it up and you actually prayed for forgiveness in your heart and blessings in their life. The one time you were scared to share the gospel with a friend because you worried about how they might perceive you. But with awkward pauses, you explained how much Jesus meant in your life. That one time that you weren't sure about being an ally for justice because, you know, those, that fringe group over there. But you acted in solidarity anyway because you cared about people having a better life who are marginalized. If God is more excited to celebrate your spiritual successes than judge you for your failures, to, to characterize you by your acts of obedience rather than disobedience, how would that encourage you in your faith journey? I know for me personally, I would be less likely to give up trying even when I fail. Because I realize that God isn't keeping score the way most people typically do. That God's mercy, God's forgiveness, combined with the graciousness of God's judgment, makes my repentance from sin not something that's scary, not something that's shameful, but actually wonderfully refreshing. Repentance gives me a new start. But our journey of faith is not just God viewing us in the best possible light. Our author of Hebrews, before he gets to describing this spiritual anchor, is going to show us two other intertwining cords that wrap around with God's promises. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The two cords, Hebrews says, the two unchangeable things that wrap together with God's promises are, one, the unchangeable character of God's purpose, and two, God's oath. Let's start with the unchangeable character of God's purpose. You may have heard it said before that God doesn't change And this often gets said in the context of because you were starting to question some maybe problematic doctrine in a church. Like, oh yes, we know women can't preach, or queer people can't marry, or slavery can't be abolished, or certainly the earth doesn't revolve around the sun because we know God doesn't change. So so right here in the Bible. But for starters, we often confuse our interpretation of God as the truth of God. And so yes, my interpretation may be ignorantly stubborn and I can call that unchanging, but that has nothing to do with the actual truth of God. And in fact, when you read the Bible, God does change God's mind quite often. Again, just in the life of Abraham, God endures this comical negotiation with Abraham in Genesis 18, where Abraham bargains God down to agreeing, okay, fine, if there are just 10 non-garbage humans in Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't destroy it. Spoiler alert, he does destroy it. So if God, who in fact does change, if that's true, then what is our preacher in Hebrews talking about? That the character of God's purposes do not. When God places a calling on your life, when Jesus declares he wants abundant life for you, those things won't change. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who helped teach our author of Hebrews Christian theology, wrote earlier in his letter to the Romans, chapter eleven twenty nine. he declared that God was so consistent in this regard that, quote, the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. The goodness of God's character is steadfast, faithful, and unwavering. You never need to worry if God's will for your life will not be for your ultimate good, even if you are not as steadfast, faithful, or unwavering as you think you should be. Now the second chord, God's oath, might seem a little odd to us at first, but when we look closer at the context, we will actually discover that this is a very gracious gesture by God. Look at verse 15 from our first reading in Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So Abraham receives promises from God, but then God also supplies an oath on top of that promise Look at how our preacher in Hebrews makes note of what God did with Abraham in verse 16 of Hebrews 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In the ancient world, one which often lacked the written contracts, verbal oaths were considered the greatest guarantee. Why? 
Because oaths were not just promises by a person to do something, they often included negative consequences if that person failed to do what was promised. So if I don't do what I promise you, may terrible things happen. May my reputation be officially ruined. May my God curse me. It it was calling down the proverbial lightning bolt from heaven. But what happens when the promise comes from heaven itself? Because God, by the very nature of God, can't lie. God doesn't need to make an oath. It is redundant for God to swear by God. So why does God even bother then? For us. God makes an oath for us. There's no weaknesses in God's promise. But there's weakness in my faith. God then, knowing the weakness of our faith, offers us assurances to strengthen us. And so if that was an oath for Abraham, then what is that for us today? I think it's the hymns and the songs that we sing in order to make new space for the Holy Spirit to interact with us. I think it's the stories from Scripture that remind us how God has proven reliable in the past. It's the testimonies in our community that give real evidence that even when I feel like God is not showing up in my life at a particular moment, God has shown up in the lives of my brothers and my sisters and my siblings and God will do it again. But y'all, just as God didn't need to give Abraham an oath, God doesn't need to do any of this for us. You know, we often take it all for granted But we aren't entitled for the Holy Spirit to comfort us. We aren't entitled to 1,500 years of faith history being preserved for us. We aren't entitled to knowing what God has done for someone else. But God, knowing the weakness of my own faith, offers additional assurances that I might be strengthened. The preacher of Hebrews calls them a refuge. And it is a refuge because it is not to prevent our suffering, but rather is it as a place that we can run to in our suffering. These two chords then. God's oath and God's unchangeable character of purpose wrap around the cord of God's promises to provide a rope capable of holding fast to God's anchor. And so this then is how we can secure our hope in hard times. Let's look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now the author of Hebrews is going to blend two metaphors together here, common in the first century, in order to help his audience understand a brand new concept that he's going to introduce, probably one that they've never even heard anything like before. 
He's going to use the nautical metaphor that is our anchor and then combine it with the Jewish temple metaphor that is the inner place behind the curtain. Now normally we imagine an anchor being dropped down off the boat into the water. But here the preacher of Hebrews describes the anchor going into the innermost place of the temple. The place where the presence of God was said to have resided. And so then we might imagine then that it's kind of like a horizontal rope on the other end of the curtain. And perhaps I'm on the other side almost like a tug of war. But remember, the temple is also a metaphor. For the preacher of Hebrews, the presence of God is not actually confined to this finite space in a temple. The temple exists as a faint shadow of what is an infinite heaven. This means then that the anchor is not tethered sideways, no. but upwards. It is a repelling anchor. It's a grappling hook into the heights of heaven itself. But even if this feels like a wild concept to grasp, that there's this three-chord rope of God's promises, oath, and unchangeable character of purpose tethered to this anchor in some other dimensional heaven, the key dynamic of an anchor is still the same here as when I used to watch my uncle drop it off the boat. I can't see it. It's beyond my vision. The anchor disappears into the sea. The anchor disappears into heaven. Either way, I can see part of the tether, but that's all I can see. And I have to have hope that it is capable of holding fast, no matter how difficult the conditions become. But here's why I can have hope. I know the one who placed the anchor. Verse 19, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. I can have a realistic hope, a reasonable hope that I am anchored to the presence of God not because I think I'm religious not because I think I'm a good person, not because I have positive thinking, but because Jesus has gone before me and anchored the tether of my soul to a place that I cannot see for myself. Y'all, you don't want to trust your anchor with anyone else. Not even yourself. Your positive thinking? Well, maybe you're more chipper than me, but I'm personally prone to cynicism and self-doubt. You being a good person, well, I hate to tell you, but there's at least one person in your past who would strongly dispute you are a good person. How about being religious? 
well, I'm not even entirely sure what that entails, but I don't think I really want to be religious. That sounds stuffy and boring. No. Since I cannot traverse death or heaven myself to see where the anchor of my soul is, Jesus is the only one I trust to anchor it. And the good news is that Jesus has come from heaven and that Jesus has overcome death and that Jesus has returned to heaven with victory over death. And so that if I can believe that God has made good on any promises to Abraham or the Hebrew people or even me, then certainly the promises made by God through Jesus are even more reliable. May God strengthen you until you have obtained your promise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Now we have some very tough questions for Colin. Oh yeah, I felt like that was coming. Yep. All right. How does one hold to God's promises if one's lived experience has been that God has left them or worse, God has harmed them? Mm, yeah. Oh man, that's a hard question. Um, so this is, I'm going to put this in the category of, of questions I cannot properly dignify in 60 seconds. That, that this would definitely fall into that category. Um, I think for me personally, one of the places that I've, I've tried to be more open is that I often feel like I might know what exactly God's promise is. And then over time, God's like, okay, you thought you knew what this promise was. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's a little different than how you imagine it. Yeah. Um, and so I tried to hold open the possibility that God's promise may manifest to me in a way that is different than I anticipated or maybe looks different. Um, and I think if we go back to our Abraham story, right, I think Abraham could have asked this same question like, mm -hmm. hey, God, it seemed like your promise was pretty clear. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be panning out the way that you, I understand it. And so I think you're at least... Um, in good company. So I don't have a great answer for this person, but I think you can know that you are in good company with the host of biblical characters to be frustrated uh, and almost despondent by saying, God, I don't think you're holding up your promises. And that, that is not, should not, you should not consider that a, a mark against your faith. Okay. What would you say the judgment of God is more about our intentions than the acts themselves? Mm, it's the judgment of God more about the intentions of the act. I, I, I do think God does, is very focused on the intentions of the heart, right? Mm. Now, there's still consequences. You can have good intentions and still have bad consequences. But I, I think in the context of, of looking at Abraham today, just mm. even cursory, right? Like, God is so willing to cheer on where you are doing well <laughs> rather than to fault you for where you are failing. And I think that's where I, I think the judgment of God is so gracious. Mm -hmm. where we, we think about judgment as like this negative, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. the, it's the hammer coming on you. Whereas so many times the judgment of God is actually God's like positive assessment of you, even the one that you don't even see in yourself where you're like, I, am I this? And God's like, yes, you are this. This is great. And you're like, really? And God's like, yes. And, and I, I think if we sometimes start to think about God's judgment in that way, mm -hmm. I think we'll be far more encouraged to think about God's like assessment of our lives. That's a really lovely way to think about it as a Reformed Baptist. <laughs> so then why did Jesus tell his followers not to make oaths? Yeah, so Jesus, the Jesus um, this is one of the things that Jesus actually breaks with a lot of his contemporaries on. Uh, and I, I think the, the best reason is Jesus is saying, like, my followers shouldn't need Mm -hmm. Do you have to one-up their promise game? Because they are going to be so known for honesty and integrity that just, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's like, that's what my people should be like. You shouldn't have to go to a Christian and go, okay, but do you double, triple promise, right? Do you like, pinky promise? Do you pinky promise? Do the oath before God. He's like, no, my, pe my people should just be known by simple honesty. And so this is where Jesus um, often, in a lot of his teachings, he actually kind of gets back to the root of, he says like, you know, we, we put all these rules and laws on here, and I get it because people are broken, but he says like, at the end of the day, um, this is really what my people should be about. And it's, he oftentimes, oftentimes simplifies it, and I think that's mm -hmm. an example of it. Nice. Well, if you'll have any other questions or you're watching this later and you've got some more questions, feel free to text them in and Colin will address them on Facebook Live tomorrow. Right. Thanks, Sam.